<laughs> Let's just see who's lying, shall we? Would a real woman have to wear one of these? Boy, that's really on there. But tell me this. Would a real woman be missing these? <laughs> that kind of surgery can be done over the weekend. But I doubt very much if he could find the time during his busy schedule to get rid of big old Mr. Kanish. Alrighty then, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we dive deep into pop culture from the 80s and 90s, which happens to be When We Were Young, and see how it holds up now that we're less young, but still furiously moisturizing. <laughs> Somebody stop me from aging. In every episode, we take a look at the movies, TV, or music of yesteryear, and covering forgotten diamonds in the rough, and some rough amongst the diamonds. <laughs> I'm Chris, the podcast host whose gun is most likely to dig into your hip. I'm Seth Pearson, the co-host most likely to look for a big, better deal, a BBD. <laughs> and I'm Becky. I'm the podcast host most likely to wear out my welcome after only five minutes of spewing catchphrases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're already done here, Becky. <laughs> Bye! <laughs> In case you couldn't tell from that opening, we are going back today to the year 1994, which saw the meteoric rise of one of the biggest movie stars of the era, Jim Carrey. As I'm sure you are aware, Jim Carrey was a massive box office draw, particularly in the mid-90s. Uh, in that era, he started in a lot of movies that would be great to discuss on a podcast such as this, including Batman Forever, Liar Liar, The Truman Show. But that's a lot of movies, so we are... Uh, not going to get carried away. <laughs> or are we? According to Jim. <laughs> so instead of looking at Jim Carrey's entire 90s career, we are just going to look at his early rise to fame. Now, usually an actor stars in a hit movie and then gets cast in other movies that are, you know, seeking to capitalize on that film's success. Not Jim Carrey. He just starred in three really big successes all in the same year, in yeah, 1994. I'm kind of assuming that he got cast in all three of these movies before any of them came out. For the most part, yes. Okay. Um, so the three movies we're talking about today are Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. The number six, number nine, and number 16 movies at the box office for 1994. He made a that lot of money insane. that year. That is so completely insane to me. Yeah. Um, so... What the fuck was going on in 1994, you what guys? What was in the water? Well, I guess In Loving Color Sharks. was on TV at the time, I believe. And he was the, like, a standout um, comedian on mm -hmm. that show. Um, and I guess just, it, you know, the ball really rolled for him. <laughs> it was just really his year. His yeah. balls were really rolling. <laughs> yeah. So in every episode, we like to start by asking a question, or as Jim Carrey might say, asking a question. You guys, you can't see it, but we're all speaking from our butts into the microphones. Oh, yeah. That's how we usually record. <laughs> yeah, so. no different than usual. Again, just a glimpse behind the fourth wall. So what I was thinking about in this episode as we were watching many, many Jim Carrey movies. Chris more than me and Seth, but yeah. that was of his own volition. I, I'm a masochist. I was thinking back to <laughs> around this time and how I don't remember really ever walking out of a movie theater feeling that dissatisfied when I was a kid. Like, I would always go and have more or less a good enough time. 
And so my question that I'm thinking about this episode is, when did you guys become a critic? When can you remember yourself like starting to become critical of movies and making a difference between a good movie and a bad movie? That's an interesting question. I can tell you the first movie of only a handful in my life that I walked out of was the movie Toys with Robin Williams. Mm. When did that movie come out? Like 1992? Yeah, I think it was right. So right I was then. around nine or 10 years old. And I remember I saw it with my mom and I really wanted to see it because I remember the trailers were like Robin Williams in a field. And like, it was very cool. <laughs> it must sell for any child. <laughs> if that doesn't get you in the theater. <laughs> Well, Robin Williams was really big because he was a genie. I think Hook had come up by the point. You know, he was a big star for kids. And it just seemed kooky and zany and fun. And when they <laughs> and did, it was not. <laughs> when they did cut away to parts of the movie, it was all like fun, colorful toys in a toy shop. And so we went to go see it. And like, I think at some point, like in the middle of the movie, me and my, my mom just look at each other and we're like, we're going to go. <laughs> like, it was just bad. And then I remember we went to Ben's Deli on Long Island Got some matzo ball soup and pickles, and we talked about how bad the movie was. And so I was around 9 or 10 years old. Wow. For a while when I was little, I think I didn't like things, but I thought it was my fault. Like, I didn't get it. It was. <laughs> it was this whole time. That's what this show has actually been about. Oh, okay. When we were Becky's fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would think the movie's smarter than me. So if I didn't get it or like it, then that must be my fault and it knows what it's doing. It's a movie or a TV show. It wouldn't be in the theater if it didn't know what it was doing, <laughs> Becky. That's the voice of the movie. What, what it wouldn't have spent millions of dollars <laughs> without a cohesive story in place, right? I would just watch whatever's on TV. And I remember watching like Heathcliff one day and I was like, I hate this. <laughs> like, I remember being like, I don't like this. Garfield is so much better. <laughs> Why am I watching this? And I remember like turning the channel like, like, take That's that. actually what made them decide to cancel Heathcliff. Yeah, I just, and I remember that thinking about like Dennis the Menace. I think when you just start slowly <laughs> realizing that you have authority over yourself and you're just like, wait a minute, I don't like this. Like, I don't have to watch everything that's put right it. in front of my face. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think it was roughly between seven and ten when I realized I cannot like things. And also that doesn't mean that I don't understand it. It could mean the thing I'm watching is bad. So pretty early for That's me. pretty great. So it turns out that 1994 was the year that I discovered my critical faculties. Really? It, I thought you were criticizing, like, the womb as you were coming out. <laughs> I, I raided my womb later. I was the womb raider at a different point in my life. Um, <laughs> Lara Croft, womb raider. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Wait, how did you know about my novella? <laughs> So I, I developed my critical faculties during this year, but not around Jim Carrey movies for some reason. Uh, I saw each of the films that we're discussing in the theater. Uh, I know Everybody did, Seth. They were huge. I, yeah, they were legally mandatory during that time. But it was actually seeing the film Wagons East. <laughs> Wait, that was with John Candy. That was John Candy's yeah. last like comedy. Aww. I think I saw that in released the theater in the theater. Too. I remember the trailer. I so I remember remembering that as the first movie that I caught myself watching in a movie theater and was reacting in the moment with like, oh, I shouldn't be spending my time in a movie theater watching this. This is spending time that I am wasting that I will never get back. So if anything, I had a glimpse at my own mortality 
<laughs> watching this film in the theater. I'm like picturing baby Seth with, with <laughs> your, still your glasses, same glasses, oh, yeah. but like Again. huge on your face. And you're just like in the movie theater watching popcorn and like your smile I, I'm slowly wa- fades and you have an existential crisis. <laughs> yes, I I I had deep internal turmoil. Uh, the Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel started playing as I was watching Wagons East. Um, no, but it was just my first... Um, moment where I recognized that the thing I was watching was bad, and I certainly had, you know, like, I I knew that there were some movies that I liked, and that they weren't necessarily, like, good. I had some vague notions of what, like, art was, of course, you know, very broadly drawn at that age. Um, But that was kind of one of the first moments in my life where I discovered a critical reaction um, in the moment of something. Interesting. We have also, toys. Yeah. I forgot what you're Wagons East. Wagons East. I already forgot the movie. <laughs> that's, that's how memorable it was. The first movie, and I think maybe still the only movie I've ever walked out of, was Beverly Hills Ninja, <laughs> a 1997 Chris Farley movie. Wow, that... we're just disrespecting the dead left and right here, you guys. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> this just got creepy. <laughs> Yeah, a friend of mine and I walked out of that movie because we were not enjoying the first 10 or 20 minutes or however far we got into that movie. And I don't blame us. <laughs> now to be I'm fair, back. that is like a 40 minute long movie. <laughs> <laughs> back at the time, like I feel like the only real distinction I had between good and b- bad movies was did I own it or not? <laughs> like <laughs> if I really liked the movie, I bought it and I had it on VHS. And if I didn't, I probably just didn't buy it. And I think that was the only real like thumbs up, thumbs down test. And I don't remember really, like, hating a movie until pretty much film school era when I started, like, being really critical of things. Like, I I was looking back at a lot of the box office hits, and there were a lot of things that I didn't enjoy, such as Lara Croft Tomb Raider, actually, is one of the ones that I looked at, and I was like, I didn't like that movie. The Fifth Element, I didn't like. Wild Wild West, I didn't like. Wow. You were wrong about only one of those opinions. (laughs) It's not bad, Chris. It's well, not that'll bad. be a different episode. But mm-hmm. kind of like Becky was saying is like, I don't know that I really understood that it was the movie that was bad. Or I, I feel like there was some sense of my not enjoying it was some sort of failure on my part. I, I didn't blame it on the movies or particularly on the filmmakers who made the movies until I started really like researching who was making these movies. And before this, I think I kind of assumed that it knew what it was doing. Yeah, like <laughs> I remember... There was a time where a lot of dumb action movies came out. Like, I love Face Off now, but, like, because (laughs) it's a funny movie to watch, but it's terrible. Um, But I remember at the time, it made a lot of money, and people were going to it saying, it's awesome. Like, it was a good movie. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, never understood that, because I was like, it's not, though. (laughs) Well, not all of us were watching... (laughs) Train spotting and secrets right. and lies. I did get started early on very good movies, so I think my uh, line of what I considered to be good was pretty high. Yeah. Let's go into the bio of Jim Carrey a little bit. He was born in 1962 in Ontario, Canada. He has said that if comedy didn't work out for him, he'd probably be working at the local steel mill. And at 10, he wrote a letter to Carol Burnett proclaiming himself a master of impressions, <laughs> wanting a It wasn't spot. wrong. <laughs> he wanted a spot on her show. He did not get one. <laughs> um, so basically, he rose up in comedy through open mic nights and then paid gigs and eventually started opening for Rodney Dangerfield. 
Uh, he moved to L.A. performing at the Comedy Store and then eventually got on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which was considered pretty much the biggest break for comedians at the time. Did Johnny invite him to sit next to him afterwards? I am not aware. Did Johnny invite him to join him in the hot tub after? <laughs> well, that's a rite of... That he did, That's yes. honestly yes. like a rite of passage uh, no, I know. where I Johnny just... puts his um, you know, stamp of approval if he comes over and invites you to sit next to him. Um, after your set. And I remember like when Ellen was on, that was a really big deal. Hmm. Um, yeah. Cause he usually didn't let women sit on his furniture. <laughs> <laughs> they usually had to stand in the corner with their shame. I don't think that we can attribute so much sexism to Johnny Carson without doing further research. Things were different back then, Chris. I think you'll learn. Jim Carrey also auditioned for SNL and did not get it. Um, this was the 1980 and 81 season where Lorne Michaels was on a hiatus and NBC decided to do the show anyway. Mm. So they fired everyone <laughs> and just hired an all new cast with uh, Eddie Murphy and Gilbert Gottfried being the um, yep. the standout performers that we still know and love today. And uh, then it was a terrible season and those people all pretty much all got fired. So. Again, very different times. <laughs> Jim Carrey dodged a bullet with that one, I yeah, think, seriously. by not getting on SNL. Uh, he was also in some film roles in this era. Peggy Sue Got Married, in which he plays a coke-snorting dentist. And uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. <laughs> oh, man. Which I well, You just should just Google, just Google Earth Girls Are Easy. Any clip will do. <laughs> you watched the whole thing, Chris? Never made fun of this movie. It's an insane movie. It's a completely bonkers movie. It's there, there, And there was almost kind of like a sub-genre of alien romantic comedies. My stepmother is an alien. Precisely the one I was thinking of. Um, and then there was later a one that Gary Shandling did. Mm, um, yeah. I don't remember the name of it. No one but does. But yeah, it was like a whole, it was such a weird, dumb... What planet are you from? Something yes. like that? Is that yeah, That called? is exactly what it's called. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Earth Girls Are Easy is a musical. Oh, what? Yeah. yeah. But all the music is by Julie Brown and performed by Julia Brown in the movie, even though she's not one of the main characters and really doesn't have anything to do with yes. the main plot. Do you know that song, I'm a Blonde, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah? Like, no. Okay, well, that's from this movie, apparently. I that's have no what idea. passed for music, Becky. <laughs> From there, Jim Carrey moved on to In Living Color, the Waynes Brothers sketch comedy show, alongside such future stars as Jamie Foxx and Jennifer Lopez. Fly girl. Yeah, she was a dancer, not a comedian. Don't we all know the chops <laughs> of J-Lo? Uh, he was on the show from 1990 to 1994, and he was famous for a few different characters, one of whom was Fire Marshal Bill. One was Vera DeMilo, who was a very masculine female bodybuilder. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Um, did he have like little pigtails? Yes, in his he hair? did. I watched in Living Color. So yeah, I think that we will probably cut in a clip of Fire Marshal Bill just to get you in the mood for <laughs> something like that, <laughs> right? I feel like that that should substitute for the clip of that. <laughs> Guys, that was your clip. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like most of the clips in this episode should just be Becky's approximation. Uh, I of will our be voices. honored to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be your best role yet. <laughs> Next thing you know, your gas light goes out on your new gas range. Suddenly, your house is hit by a giant meteor storm that's totally unexpected. One of those hot little babies comes right through the kitchen window. You just happen to be holding a match. Hey! You're not going to like that, are you? Don't worry, folks. I have a fire marshal. (laughs) 
So as we get into talking about the movies, um, I'm pretty sure that none of us had any especially deep connections to these particular titles. You are wrong. Really? (laughs) Okay. As I briefly mentioned, I saw each of these movies in the theater. And for a good year and a half or two after this, these defined my personal comedy (laughs) style. You were one of those kids. I was one of those kids who um, survived solely on free-range catchphrases that I discovered in (laughs) pop-cultural trash that I encountered. Um, I was deeply in love with these movies, and I would quote them constantly, and yeah, definitely kind of had a lot of my own sense of humor was based around catchphrases and zaniness, (laughs) wacky-tude, if you will. Were you a big fan of Jim Carrey or a big fan of those movies in particular? Or did you make any kind of distinction? I made no distinction. I definitely immediately recognized him as just a uniquely talented physical comedian. Mm -hmm. That never went away. Obviously, my taste in comedy changed and grew past catchphrases. There are other people in my life whose senses of humor did not evolve past the catchphrase phase. Mm -hmm. But But not us, right? Uh, no, definitely present company excluded. I just wanted to clarify. Smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty then. Somebody stop me. Uh, yeah, these movies connected with me to the extent that for several years I would go to basically any Jim Carrey movie that came out, whether that was Cable Guy, whether that was Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls, which I saw in theaters with my parents, and they've never forgiven me for that. <laughs> I bet not. <laughs> Becky, what was your overall impression of Jim Carrey in the 90s, and what did you kind of think of him going into the podcast? Well, I had never seen Ace Ventura before this podcast, actually, so I missed that. <laughs> oh, how? I, I, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know how I missed it, but I've never seen When Nature Calls. and never saw the first one. They just evaded me. But I've never been into scatological <laughs> humor, ever. Like, anything gross-out humor, I hated. Um, oh, I still don't really we like just it. missed Petite Sophisticate. I was. I was grossed out by all that. I hated it all. You're like, give me eyes pried open with claw-like devices, but get that fart joke far away, please. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, wait I have wait, to interrupt. On. Hold on here. You loved train spotting. There's shit <laughs> everywhere in that movie. There's literally a sequence that is comprised okay. of going into but shit. I, but I don't like watching that scene. <laughs> okay. And like, you know, there's parts of Dumb and Dumber that are shit-based, and I don't, I don't, I don't like those scenes. <laughs> So, um, fair, right. But I could tell from the trailers of Ace Ventura, even back then, that's what the humor was for that entire movie. So I was like, I'm out. I saw the mask in theaters. I saw Dumb and Dumber, if not in theaters, then on DVD. I remember liking the mask at the time because I really was really into cartoons and really into special effects in movies. So I think that was really exciting for me to see that kind of special effects then. Mm -hmm. And as far as Dumb and Dumber, my sister had the soundtrack and we would listen to it like, it's a good soundtrack. Oh, God. It's just a good soundtrack and my sister bought it and I think Dumb and Dumber was more her movie and then I was like, I want to be like my sister and I would watch that movie which was like a little bit more adult, I guess, or at least marketed more towards adults. I would watch Dumb and Dumber a lot that summer on DVD and when it came out and 
would, you know, quote it, put it on all the time, watch it with my sister. We'd listen to the soundtrack. It's really funny. Todd Rundgren did the music for this. He's like a pop songwriter who's got like 25 albums or something. I like his soundtrack. But yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like he, he did the music in it and curated the other songs that are on it. Yeah, and as far as Jim Carrey, I think that I just always liked him because I was really into comedy from a really young age. And he was just really impressive, just his physical comedy. And I'm not necessarily really into physical comedy, but he just has such presence. I think I really started to like Jim Carrey when The Truman Show came out. And what year was that? 98? Mm -hmm. So I was 15 then, and I just expected him to be really you know, a certain way in that movie and he defied my expectations. And that's when I just decide when I realized just how talented he is. And that made me really like him going forward. And it made me appreciate the stuff that he had done before the Truman Show. When I worked as a red carpet reporter for E! a couple years ago, I did the Horton Hears a Who premiere and I got to interview Jim Carrey on the red carpet. And I remember like my heart beating fast and I was like so <laughs> happy. I'm like, the, like this comedy genius is like looking at me and like making eye contact with me <laughs> and answering my questions. And I like shook his hand and I was just so, so happy and excited because it's not one particular movie. Like I love Eternal Sunshine and a lot of his movies, but really it's just his overall scope of work and how legendary is just in comedy that I I really respect him even if I don't like particular movies he's done I just think he's fantastic he like eclipses each individual movie as a whole yeah I think Jim Carrey was really ubiquitous in the 90s particularly if you were an 11 year old boy or so um (laughs) I think not an 11 year old or so boy But if you're a boy or so. Or so. <laughs> we don't judge here on the podcast. That's true, honestly. I, if you I, choose you to have... identify as so, then... <laughs> you would have had to round me up to boy. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, so I'm pretty sure I heard every single friend I ever had at the time say, alrighty then, and somebody stopped me. And all of these quotes were just like Oh, I like, feel like everywhere. I've seen Ace Ventura before this. Yeah. I knew every single catchphrase. Didn't know how often they appeared in that movie. Yeah, how many people <laughs> talked at you with their butts, Becky, and you just had no Too idea many. what? So I had probably about as little familiarity with these particular movies as you could because I saw each of them just once. I saw The Mask in the Theaters, I'm pretty sure, and the other two just on video. And I had seen all of them only one time before coming into this podcast. So I had no idea (laughs) what to expect. But I was a fan in general of Jim Carrey. Like, you guys, my Jim Carrey jam was more like Batman Forever, Liar Liar. Like, I liked a couple of his later movies more than I particularly gravitated toward these ones. But in general, I had a fond appreciation of him. So that will take us into Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which was released February 4th, 1994. The top of the charts was All for Love by Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting. Wow. The week of this release, Tanya Harding's ex-hubby Jeff Galuli pled guilty for attacking Nancy Kerrigan. Wow. And Green Day's Dookie was released. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. The, the humor fits the episode. It does. Mm. It really does. It still works on me, Becky. You see? Ew. <laughs> Ace Ventura was directed by Tom Shadiak, who would go on to direct Jim Carrey in Liar Liar and Bruce Almighty later. It was written by Jack Bernstein. Shadiak and Carrie got screenwriting credit as well. The budget was $15 million and it ended up making worldwide $107.2 million and uh, was not 
really reviewed very well by critics. <laughs> you um, don't say. No. <laughs> Rita Kempley of the Washington Post says, Jim Carrey stoops to new highs in low comedy. Actually, he bends over, flaps his cheeks, and introduces the world to butt ventriloquism. A riot from start to finish, Carrey's first feature comedy is as cheerfully body as it is idiotically inventive. So she gave it a good review, but uh, Entertainment Weekly gave it an F. And Gleberman. It was Gleberman. <laughs> he said, Carrie suggests an escaped mental patient impersonating a game show host. And what's worse, his hyperbolically obnoxious shtick is the whole damn show. And uh, Ebert also gave it one star. So some critics appreciated it, but not very many. But that did not stop it from being number one at the box office. Followed by Mrs. Doubtfire, Philadelphia, and My Father the Hero. My Father the Hero? Yeah. It's a Gerard Depardieu movie with what? Catherine Heigl. Yeah. Why do what? I know this? Why do I know this? I'm the asking you. The podcast is now about <laughs> Becky's mystery. <laughs> I actually, I saw that in theaters as well. What? And I'm sure it holds up quite well. As well as his face. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Ace Ventura. Do we have Where to? Where do we begin? <laughs> I um, thought that there would be not very much to say about this movie. And there is so much to say so about it. so much to say. Are you sure your date is all right? It's been an awfully long time. Uh, who, Tom? Oh, I'm sure he's fine. Do not go in there. Woo! I think my most abiding question from this is who on earth greenlit this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I can understand why this movie was greenlit. I can't, I don't understand (laughs) how they, I don't even. (laughs) There's so, no. Just take this part out. I just don't even know where to. We can't, we can't because that confusion is the pure space in which my feelings about this is. Okay, I had never seen this movie before and I wish I had it. (laughs) Like, I actively wish I could go back in time and unsee this movie. Mm -hmm. There's my review. Well, uh, part of the movie is acted by Jim Carrey's ass. I also feel that Jim Carrey's ass may have written and directed it. Um, okay, maybe you can answer a question for me. Maybe. This was a movie before, like, Jim Carrey was cast in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yes, that's true. Like, he didn't create this role. This movie was in development for six years. What? Like, that yeah. astounds he, It was me. not written for him. It took six years to shit this out? (laughs) Yeah. This astounds me because I just assumed going into it, oh, this is a Jim Carrey character. Right. But he didn't. He was cast into it. And I can't imagine what that screenplay was before he came along and added, you know, the things that he added. I wonder what that movie was. I'm still trying to figure out what a pet detective actually is. (laughs) Right. I mean, I'm disappointed that it doesn't mean that you are a pet who, with some of your time, detects. (laughs) Is there a world of pet detection outside of Jim Carrey? Doesn't seem like it. So, okay. So the writer of this movie... I already forgot his name. And Again, I'm, I already don't believe that this movie was written. You're giving yeah. us lies at every turn. He was inspired by watching Stupid Pet Tricks and decided to <laughs> combine that with Sherlock Holmes, which I don't really get from this movie. My problem with this movie... You're one singular problem, right? <laughs> I have one singular problem in that... One I think there are two things to talk about problem. with this movie. One is Jim Carrey's performance, and one is the screenplay. 
So Jim Carrey's performance is very Jim Carrey-esque, and we can you know talk about that more. But the screenplay makes no sense, and I think it's a horribly written uh, movie. None. There is not one second of the plot or the characters. Yes. So I think the idea of a pet detective could be funny. Like, I get that as an idea for a movie. It's like somebody who... Other people lose their animals by whatever means, and he finds them. Right. Like, I thought of, like, a lady realizing that her, or, like, thinking that her cat is cheating on her by, like, visiting another old lady. And, like, he's a pet detective who, like, stalks the cat and finds out the mystery. Or, like, solving the murder of, like, a hamster that it was actually, like, the mom who killed the hamster because she didn't like the hamster. You know, like, that kind of humor, I think, is funny. But this has nothing to do with pets. It just seems like he is such a nincompoop that the only way of getting money is by taking those lost animal posters off the wall and finding those animals and getting the reward money. So it's pretty unscrupulous. I mean, that's what happens in the beginning is that, you know, he finds somebody's dog, um, like rescues it from somebody's apartment. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, he's such a dumbass, you know. Like, he can't hold a job. This is all he can do to make money. But how did he even find that dog? And how did he... What is his actual actual contractual relationship, if any, with the police department? Because he's at the police department (laughs) as though he is employed by them to pet detect. Like, he's a nuisance to them, but they allow him in the building. (laughs) And I'm guessing they compensate him in some way. No, I don't think he works for the police. I think he, like... But why does he work there? But they let him in the building. (laughs) He's a private detective. I mean, they make fun of him. So it's kind of like a parody of, I feel like, Lethal Weapon, in a way, where he's, like, the wild Mel Gibson cop, and they forgot to have, like, a straight man to, like, play off of him. Because this movie would work so much better if there was someone else in it. Like... Courtney Cox is, I guess, kind of the straight man in this, but she doesn't really have a character. She doesn't do anything in this movie. Like, no. Well, Sean Young is the closest to a straight man. That's right. who that until is. Until she Sean turns Young. out to be a straight man. Oh God. Let, Let's we're, we're gonna, save that. Yeah, we're gonna save that because I can't even. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's a problem I had. Why does Ace even like animals? Right. And they almost got there because there's a scene with him and Courtney Cox where he's like, do you want to know why I do what I do? And she's like, yes. And then he like starts talking and then it turns out like, ha I was just kidding. Like it was a joke. Time to cut to another scene. And then scene. they never, he never actually says, I like animals because of this or I do this because of this. Right. I'm like, this movie needs a concept for like why he's good at what he does. Like are animals yes. the only things that can stand him because he's so crazy was he raised by wolves like (laughs) any of these like bad ideas (laughs) would work fine if like it feels like it's missing an opening scene that's like an origin story or something or at least explain why does he care about animals and then like the movie is about like solving the kidnapping of a dolphin which is not a pet and he doesn't use any animal skills to find the pet it's all like regular detective skills so why is he a pet detective (laughs) why can't he just be a regular detective who's looking for this dolphin like the animals have nothing to do with it and factor into the movie not at all yeah like I can imagine a movie about a pet detective and it's about a person who's very antisocial who detects pets who doesn't who doesn't get along with human society right but but he likes animals if he's autistic in some way or like something like that like not even like raised by wolves just anything that establishes his motivations as a character this whole movie is as chris said bad writing because none of the characters are grounded in any kind of motivation or reason why they do what they do 
You never get a sense of what his goal is, what he's going after. You never get a sense of what he thinks he wants in life. Like, yeah. none of that. It's just, just completely a, unmotivated. Having a nice scene of him actually connecting with, like, an animal, like a, just a normal dog or something, would be, like, nice. And it'd be mm. like, I'd care about him more if there was at least... And I think, I mean, this is Dumb and Dumber, but, like, I think they do do that in Dumb and Dumber and give Lloyd, like, a grounded scene of what he wants. Yeah. And I felt like that was missing in Ace Ventura of, like, the scene where Ace... They almost got there in that scene where it's like, I really wanted to know why he does what he does yeah. and maybe get a flashback or just something that's like, oh, like, oh, I, I get him now at least a tiny little bit. And they're like, nope, yeah. moving on. And, and it always cuts away to just another physical gag where it's like, it, it really, this movie, all three of these movies, I think, ride on the charm of Jim Carrey's physical performance, but like he's so to use a to use a drag term, he's relying on that body body. He is just like <laughs> so okay. reliant on the physicality and the physical gags to kind of distract from the fact that there's not a fucking story you happening know, here. I want to say that like the joke of his character being obnoxious like gets old fast, but that implies that it was funny at all at any point in this movie. Right. So I think the problem one of the problems with this character is that, like, the movie doesn't know what kind of character he is. Is he, like, the stupidest person in the room or the smartest person in the room? Because he is both in this movie. He's smooped. Like, is he so dumb, but he just falls ass backwards into discovering, you know, the answer and, mm-hmm. you know, where the pet is and, you know, oops, like... I have good luck. Or is he actually really smart? Well, but it it tries to have it both ways. Where he both is the stupid person who literally stumbles into the solution and also a brilliant fucking user of deductive reasoning, like, in the Sherlock Holmes sense. Mm -hmm. So, like, it, it never decides which one of those he is. And, again, it's like... It, it, how that played out to me is I didn't feel like there was a single moment in that movie that was authentic right. because the characters could be whatever the plot required them to be for that gag to happen. Right. And everyone else is so stupid, but they're kind of reacting to him as if he's stupid. Like, I don't think everyone else knows how to react to him in this movie either. Even Courtney Cox, who would sort of be our audience proxy, just sort of seems like, oh, he's a little strange, but it's not like, are you disgusted by his behavior? Because you probably should be. It's really weird and creepy. Oh, but she's not because they have sex at some point in the movie. Like a scene after they meet each other. Oh, yeah. Like she gives it up so quickly. So... All women do. I generally like Courtney Cox, and I liked her on Friends. I liked her in Scream, you know, um... But she is not a good enough actress to sell having any interest in no. Ace Ventura. No. And there's no attempt to give I don't think Meryl Streep could have done that no, either. No, like, though. it is... I, I feel for her as an actress in this movie trying to pretend to be romantically interested in this because person. Because that's all she has to do. She has no character. Is she, like... She has no character. A nice person, a overworked person. Like, not even that basic, yeah. like, one-liner of a character is she given. She's a vagina with hair and makeup in and, this movie. And, like, they meet... <laughs> like, that is her only character. They meet and then he goes away and then he needs to go to some party and have a date and then all of a sudden she's there. There's no reason for her to have gone to his, as his date. Like, it was just like, he just kind of like plucked her. Like, who did I meet in the last few days? I guess I'll just take her. Yeah. The Ace Ventura character, and I think this is why particularly like young boys liked this movie so much, is that he's just so sarcastic. Like, everything he says is just like dripping with sarcasm. Yeah. But I don't think that makes any sense with the fact that he's like... Like, if, if he was the smart character and then he was always looking down at everyone and was just really obnoxious and full of himself, I think that would make sense as a character. But 
instead it feels like he's weird and kind of stupid and yet he still feels like he's above everyone else. Like, it's a very strange mix. And then it also, the movie also kind of plays fast and loose with, like, physics and the laws of gravity and what it means when an animal tears you to shreds. <laughs> like, there's one of the big physical gags is he ends up in a shark tank. Right. And is very clearly, like, literally thrown around by a shark and, like, spends like half a scene in its jaws and he comes out of that with no physical wounds just or his clothes are bleeding. torn his clothes are torn because what sharks want are just your shirts and yeah. pants yeah and so it was like so glaringly strange that in in opposition to in and among all the you know scatological humor in very adult situations and you know, very overt sexuality. Like, yeah. it was just weird how that was the moment that they chose to go Looney Tunes with it. Yeah, it's very clearly, like, torn between being for kids and for adults. And oh, it's kind of, it just feels like a script that you would write in, like, one sitting and be like, haha, that's my funny idea yeah. for today. Going off of what you said, like, so much of it is so juvenile that only, like, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds could like it. But then there's, like, a huge-breasted woman who, like, blows him, and then he has sex with Courtney Cox later. It's like, who was this movie for? I feel like this was a movie written by a (laughs) 12-year-old for a (laughs) three-year-old. Seriously, it feels like it was written and directed by someone who had, like, that 11-year-old peach fuzz and, like, had not shaved for the first time. And, like, just started using deodorant. Like, like doesn't it, really understand sex, but thinks yeah, he wants it, but isn't yeah. sure, like, what it is. Yeah, like, it's not even adolescent. It's, like, pre-adolescent. <laughs> like, a pre-teen fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, Dan Marino. <laughs> There's so much about this movie. Another thing about this movie is that he's basically delivering most of his lines directly to the audience. Like, there's no one around him, and yet he's constantly, like... He'll, like, move his head back where the camera is and go, like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Which is kind of his character from In Living Color. Right. Well, yeah, and it's also, it's very much like The Mask, but in this one, it just doesn't make any sense. If he was someone who, like, always was performing or something, like, if we had something about, like, that was for his character... Maybe that would make sense. But in this, it was just kind of like, oh, they want him to tell a joke and no one's around. So I guess he'll just tell it directly to the camera. Like, I can't imagine reading the script to this movie because lines like, alrighty then, aren't funny. I mean, I'm sure that that was like Jim Carrey, like probably an add-in from him. But I'm just like, none of the dialogue is funny in this movie. The only comedy comes from how much Jim Carrey is mugging. So like, it doesn't even feel like a comedy script. I want to ask a question. Is there anything in this movie that you did find funny? The third alrighty then, I sort of chuckled at. (laughs) Why did it take three? I don't know. Rule of threes. It's just pure rule of threes. I mean, there were a handful of, like, things that were mildly amusing. I thought that the when all the animals came crawling out and he puts his arms out and, like, there's, like, raccoons and penguins and, like... Oh, yeah. I thought that was, that was funny enough to make me half smile. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think that that, like, hints at a better movie. So um, I'm not going to talk about this very much, but I did watch the sequel. And the sequel actually capitalizes on that premise of that he's... Like, in communication with animals, he loves animals. Like, the bad guys, like, torture animals to get to him. So it at least has a gimmick that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, the second one, I think, is 
far and away better than this movie while not actually being like a great that movie. That one has uh, the so infamous uh, rhino pooping scene. Yes, that is hilarious. That was all <laughs> oh I remembered God. from that movie. That is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> that I found very funny. Wow. And I think that that movie also like kind of makes him into more of a James Bond character and where he's like always doing the most dangerous thing possible for no reason. And I... It finds an actual parody, like Mm -hmm. it parodies Cliffhanger in the beginning, and like it's kind of a parody of like those ultra macho heroes. So Mm -hmm. that makes sense. This movie didn't, I didn't get what they were like. Was he supposed to be a parody of a macho hero? Was he supposed to be a parody of a Sherlock Holmes character? He does that scene where he is pretending to be mentally Mm -hmm. challenged, and he's indistinguishable from (laughs) his actual self. I'm like, this is exactly what he acts like all the time. Except he's wearing a tutu, which means he's like a pussy now. Well, I guess that'll bring us into (laughs) uh, some gender gender discussion in uh, Ace Ventura. That's it. That's it. Einhorn is Finkel. Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is a man. Oh my God. Einhorn is a man. So at the end, for those who haven't seen it or don't remember, it is discovered in a really poor way, screenplay wise, that Yeah. Uh, with the dog's hair. <laughs> Not subtle. No, it's because he like just says it to himself, like, wait a minute, that must mean sh- he is she Einhorn is Finkel. or she is he. Finkel is Einhorn. But no, the dog is laying on the picture of him with hair around his <sighs> face. So and stupid. so he's like, Oh, that it's a woman. So, pulling all the way back from this, from our visceral gut reactions uh, against this movie, Sean Young, who's an actress, who was in Blade Runner, Udo Kier, who's also in this movie, so this is a kind of mini Blade Runner reunion. (laughs) Don't Uh, smear Blade Runner with that. (laughs) Sean Young plays Lieutenant Einhorn, who is Ace Ventura's ostensible boss at the police department. But he doesn't work for them. But he does, though he doesn't work for them. And Sean Young turns out to be an ex-football player. The, the guy responsible, like the villain. The, the villain is yeah. Turns out to be the bad guy, I guess. Or well, we think really that explained. where it ends up in the film is that she's actually a he and just passing as a woman and as a police lieutenant. <laughs> right. I'm like. <laughs> When you put it like that. <laughs> I may be fine with, this is a whole separate problem, but okay, like, she's a woman, like, or he's a woman, the villain, but <laughs> how did she become the lieutenant of the police and if she's she not clearly, a real cop? And she she clearly has no ability at basic police work. No. So at the crime scene, Ace Ventura finds a clue in the form of a spot of blood on a railing. And Sean Young's Lieutenant Einhorn immediately drags her finger through it <laughs> like it's extra jelly on a PB&J sandwich, which would have immediately completely ruined a 
an active crime scene right. investigation. <laughs> yeah, the police are even worse than Ace Ventura at police work, but he is also bad. And, and Sean Young's character, like, casually sexually harasses Ace. Mm-hmm. And, like, basically... And then not so casually. <laughs> and then very not casually. Which leads just to a cascade of moments through the second and third act of this movie. Jim Carrey discovers that he's kissed this character, who's a man in disguise, and vomits, puts a toilet plunger, which presumably has been in a toilet, on his face to, you know, suck the gay out. And then he burns all his clothes. While crying in the shower. Yeah. Scrubbing away. Yeah. And it culminates in the climax of the movie in a sequence where Ace Ventura strips Einhorn, literally physically strips the clothing off of her and finds her tuck. In other words, where she's tucked her penis. And the entire boathouse, the whole location, is full of cops at this point in the movie. And they all start spitting and vomiting uncontrollably. And then, almost as if she's physically compelled out of disgust to do it, Courtney Cox, like, makes out with Jim Carrey. It feels like the movie needs that to happen because Jim Carrey is, like, the real man. And they feel like they have to have a moment where a real man, like, reestablishes his masculinity. Mm -hmm. I remember liking this movie so much as a child, and I'm sorry to like go right into how it holds up now, but I think this movie is fucking vile. I think it's trash. The faults of this movie, I don't hold Jim Carrey accountable for that. I mean, obviously, times have changed. This movie does not hold up <laughs> at all, Most mostly because of the transphobic um, nature of it. Well, but it's not just anti-trans, it's anti-gay. All three of these movies are full of yeah. fucking gay jokes. It's uh, And not just, like, gay jokes of, like, ha-ha, he kisses boys, but, like, ha-ha, he kisses boys, and that's a thing we're all disgusted by, right? So we all have to throw up and be physically ill about it, right? Like, it, it goes through all of these movies at, and is at the core of his characters, Right. So I will say, while I was rewatching this movie, I did not remember very much about the plot because I had only seen it on video. And then in that scene where Sean Young is basically molesting him in her office, and he says, your gun is digging into my hip, I gasped aloud and I was like, no. And it all came like flooding yeah. back to me what oh. the secret of this movie was. And I was like, that can't be. And I like, totally they, forgot. They that. don't reveal it until a little bit later. And I was like, am I making that up? And I was like, no, th- this movie, obviously, like that scene was like embedded deep within me and then like rejected. Because I remember <laughs> when I saw that the tuck scene again, I was like, oh, I remember that visual and being like kind of just confused because I don't think I understood exactly what was what that meant. I was like, what is in the back of that underwear? I just didn't. Yeah. I just didn't quite get what was happening. It wasn't a good shot. No. Uh, (laughs) That was the real problem with it. It's an inelegant tuck. So (laughs) there's one way in which this is almost, and I don't think that the movie actually gets there, but this is coming on the heels of the heels, (laughs) the crying game and uh, the silence of the lambs. Right. Which were also criticized for being homophobic, transphobic, and depicting gay or non-heteronormative characters as psychopathic killers. So if this was a parody of the way that those movies treated those characters, I think it would actually kind of be funny. And I could see even the cops like throwing up as being like this over the top, like making fun of the way that those movies are. But I don't it necessarily didn't get think there. that. It, that. Well, and it's, and, 
And it's literally presenting that figure as being the real killer. We could spend time going through each of the very particular and active ways this movie establishes non-gender normative people as an active and calculated threat against straight people, and especially against straight men. But like it very systematically, in a way that is more intentional and calculated than its fucking plot, destroys the idea that anyone who is not heteronormative is a human being who is actually living their truth. Like it is really a very calculated argument against the existence of trans people and an argument that anyone who is even a transvestite, like who even just dresses as someone who's not their gender, is a threat specifically to straight men. I think that context is important, and I think the reason that they even had that be the twist in this movie is because of The Crying Game and Silence of the Lambs. And in fact, music from The Crying Game is in this movie. Oh, is it? Yeah, Yeah. they use the actual music from The Crying Game, because I remember seeing The Crying Game back in the day, and I still remember it pretty vividly. And it was a really big deal. It was a huge movie. I think it was nominated for Best Picture in 1992, or at least least up for multiple Oscars. So it was definitely like a movie a lot of people saw, and it was a big deal at the time that, oh, the woman turned out to be a man. And I think when they were writing this, they had that in their mind of like, our villain should... It, it will be like a, an homage or like a parody of The Crying Game, which just came out two years before. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do. But the execution is very, even if it was supposed to be a parody of something, it, the execution is so horribly anti-trans, anti-gay, like anti-women too, because before- At like, every turn. At, at every Before you turn. see like, he, like uh, she's a man- before you see that, like what you see is Ace Ventura pulling the clothes off a woman and like exposing her breasts. And yeah. it was, made me feel so that scene, violated that to scene watch that. was like so, like, even after the literal sexual assault of Sean Young's character against Ace Ventura, not just all the cops in the boathouse like throwing up in disgust, but like that moment of him stripping her was chilling. Violently. It was violent. It was it was actually frightening and she's to just me to watch. Standing there, this movie and is like... boys don't cry. Like, <laughs> it, it is no different. <laughs> it's really horrible to see it now. Kind of like Becky, I don't want to like place too much blame on this particular movie or anyone involved with it because I think I saw other jokes that were very similar to this at the same time. And the fact that like what I looked at, no critics called this movie out. I'm sure someone did at the time, but in general, like it was very well accepted by everyone who saw this movie. It became a big hit and there was no backlash. So I think, unfortunately, the culture was just in this place at the time. The context of the past is always different. You know, like we are operating from however many years of hindsight we have in talking about it now. But at the same time, a person known as being a pioneering comedian and a pioneering comedy performer and the people involved creatively in the making of this movie had the choice of how to address these things characters, even if they weren't taking into context the issues that those characters would bring up. It is always in the hands of people doing the parody, both to make sure it's funny and to understand the ramifications of what they're doing. So, I don't know. I understand not wanting to put too much weight into a critique of just the individuals responsible for making it, but at the same time, I don't know how we can completely ignore it, given that 
this movie was such a success. Because I do think there is a degree to which my taking in these hateful, poisonous, toxic, fucked up, unfunny, unrealistic notions of queerness, I think it affected the way that I conceived of myself as a person at this literal very age, discovering that I was not like everyone else. Chris, like you mentioned... It took a moment for that part of the plot line to come back to you. And it was exactly the same way for me, where I literally didn't remember that part of the plot at all, even though it is the central pivot point of the entire story of this movie. I didn't remember it until I watched it again, and it was a lot more painful than I had any context for at the time. Yeah, I think the movie definitely doesn't hold up. In general, I think it doesn't. And also specifically for that reason. I mean, it's, as Becky said, also just terrible to woman. Like, even before Sean Young's character is revealed as a... I don't think Guy the movie really gets yeah, <laughs> into, like, whether or not... Dude in a dress. Like, I don't know if this person is actually, like, trans or if this person is I doing got, this to commit the crimes. I got the impression that they are just trying to hide their identity and they did it by becoming yeah. a woman. Right. But anyway, even before that, I mean, she's a really bad female character as well. It's like, because, like, the fact that she's good at her job, or, I mean, she's not even that good, but in the world of this movie, she's kind of good at her job. And that's, like, seen as threatening to men. Everyone, like, treats her like she's a big bitch and everything just because she's, like, she's treated as, like, one of the boys. And, yeah, and Courtney Cox just, like, jumping into bed with Ace Ventura for no reason. Like, it's a bad depiction of anyone who's not (laughs) a white guy, basically. Yeah. I would never show this to my children. I wish I could rewind time and not watch it again. I didn't miss anything. (laughs) When we were young, I liked garbage. (laughs) I will say that, like, there are comedians who I think continually do the same thing over and over again. And I feel like Jim Carrey is probably someone who learned a bit of a lesson from this because I I didn't see him returning to this well a whole lot after this. Like, I think he's someone whose comedy evolved past this kind of juvenile and going for really easy targets. I would say that evolution happened after 1994. One more thing I would like to say about this movie is that Hector Salamanca plays his landlord. Yes, I needed to bring this up. Um, <laughs> Hector Salamanca from Breaking Bad and Don Hector. Oh, Don Hector. Ding, 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 ding. Better, yeah, from both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Uh, I was watching Better Call Saul literally just before I started watching Ace Ventura. Um, so now I believe that Ace Ventura lives in the same fictional universe as Do Walter Do not Wright. besmirch Breaking Bad universe. Do not go in there to cook. That's our review of this movie, is do not go in there. (laughs) (laughs) It's all over, FPS. Put your hands over your head or we'll open fire. We will now take a look at The Mask, a movie in which no trans people are beaten to a pulp while the police cheer. So it's exponentially better than Ace Ventura already from the start. It was released on July 29th, 1994. At the top of the charts was I Swear by All For One. I swear... In the time between Ace Ventura and The Mask, Kurt Cobain died and Justin Bieber was born. 
And those were the reasons this movie was made. <laughs> are you trying to say that Justin Bieber is Kurt Cobain reincarnated? Are you, are you trying to say that his soul was transferred into a Canadian body? I'm not not saying that. I'm just saying that we may have made a bad trade. Also, at this time, the Marine Biologist episode of Seinfeld aired, Yay. and the Lion King soundtrack was released. Boo! I, I just had to contrast your positivity. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love that soundtrack. I'm just kidding. Go back to episode six for proof. <laughs> so the movie was directed by Chuck Russell, who previously had done Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and later would do Eraser and The Scorpion King. Eraser? Hmm. That'll be one we have to revisit. Maybe. <laughs> that's a no <laughs> we'll discuss that off podcast Seth it was written by Mike Werb who also wrote Face Off <gasps> Lara Croft Tomb Raider and Firehouse Dog <laughs> Face Off <laughs> The Mask was based on the comics which were released by Dark Horse the comics though were very dark and violent had a lot of killing and blood they were inspired by the Joker from Batman and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde so when New Lion bought the rights to it they were originally thinking of it as a replacement for A Nightmare on Elm Street hmm. which it is not <laughs> the movie itself was inspired more by the cartoon violence of Tex Avery it's very Looney Tunes-esque and this was New Line's most expensive movie at the time. It was budgeted at $23 million, And it was kind of their first mainstream movie, too. They were usually doing genre movies. And this one was really pitched as, like, a big summer movie. Um, the special effects uh, were by ILM and were Oscar-nominated, but lost to Forrest Gump. And wow. um, they were groundbreaking. This is one of the first movies that tried to make effects that weren't real, as opposed to effects that looked real. Previously to this, there was Jurassic Park and Death Becomes Her, and even though those obviously were not super <laughs> realistic, they were going to try and sell you the idea that these things were real that you were seeing. Yeah, and the intent was reality. was much more kind of like Roger Rabbit, basically the CGI version of Roger Rabbit, like trying to make an animated character interact with the real world in an interesting way. It feels like it was very much inspired by Dick Tracy and Roger Rabbit. That I kept getting shades of those movies while mm -hmm. watching this movie. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, the movie was a huge hit. It made $351.6 million worldwide. Holy Jesus! It was number one at the box office when it uh, was released, followed by Forrest Gump, True Lies, The Client, and The Lion King. Can you imagine... The first two movies that you're the lead actor in make like over a hundred million, like over a hundred million, then over three hundred million. You don't even double it; you triple the amount from the last movie that came out. The Within same year. The same year. It's insane. Right? I can't imagine that because I do imagine it often, but. <laughs> Uh, the movie was a pretty okay movie with critics. I mean, they didn't, like, necessarily <laughs> rave about it, but most critics had some good feelings toward it. Roger Ebert said, meh. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Ebert actually gave it three stars. That is the meh of five-star <laughs> ratings. That's... It is said that one of the indispensable qualities of an actor is an ability to communicate the joy he takes in his performance. You could say The Mask was founded on that. He also said Cameron Diaz is a true discovery in the film. A genuine sex bomb with a gorgeous face, a wonderful smile, and a gift of comic timing. This is her first movie role after a brief modeling career. It will not be her last. They introduce Cameron Diaz in the credits. Mm -hmm. And yep. I'd like to point out that they don't introduce people very often anymore. Yeah, I feel like people are underintroduced. Yeah. They're just there. I really like, like that. like they were there all along. I really like that credit in movies and introducing. Mm -hmm. I, Especially yeah, when it's I've someone always... who like becomes super famous later, mm -hmm. like Cameron Diaz. I always wanted to be introduced. No one ever <laughs> introduced me. 
and introducing Seth Pearson. <laughs> wow, I feel so well considered now. <laughs> he has also entered in a tight red dress and with a close up of his boobs. Yeah, yeah, that's an instant tit shot. <laughs> The New York Times was less favorable. They said, The mask underscores the shrinking importance of conventional storytelling and special effects-minded movies. Far more energy has gone into stretching Mr. Carey's face, twirling his legs, and conceiving animation-style gags for him to exploit, than into creating a single interesting character or memorable line. Even more egregiously than most of the summer's blockbusters, The Mask tells a story that wouldn't be worth telling without tricks. So, who do you agree with, Ebert or the New York Times? Tricks lady. This movie made me realize that in the 90s, the Bechdel test was not even, like, on the radar. Bechdel wasn't born yet. (laughs) Movies only needed to pass the saxophone test, which is (laughs) whether or not women can come onto the screen without saxophones playing. And this movie fails. Yes, it does not (laughs) succeed at that. I mean, I guess we already talked a little bit about Cameron Diaz, but this was her first movie role. And I think she's very alluring in this movie. She's only 21. Mm. And um, there's a lot of hype around her. Uh, I mean, on the DVD, there's a whole extra that's just about like how they found Cameron Diaz. And they have is it, all this. Is it called Considering? So is she both introduced and considered in the same. <laughs> yep, that's exactly yep. what it's called. Considering Cameron Diaz. But um, so she was a model who just happened to be in the same building. And when they were casting, they were looking for a lot of different people. And they were the biggest names that they were considering at the time were Anna Nicole Smith mm-hmm. and oh. Vanessa Williams. I mean, they fit the role because the role's nothing. You saved the best for last there. Uh, Yeah. So they just like happened to ask, like, do you, like uh, someone who worked in the same building as them, like, do you know, do you have any models who would come in and read for this? And they're like, oh, yeah, she's upstairs. We'll bring her down. We've got just the model for you. She did a reading. They loved her. The casting people loved her. They made her read like seven different times because like she had never done any acting whatsoever before. Wow. So and to cast her as like the leading lady of a big summer blockbuster was like a big risk for them at the time. And yeah, I think that's kind of remarkable that she hadn't acted before because I think she's a really good actress and she's funny. And I think that she deserves to have had the success she's had in her career. Mm -hmm. I think she's really great. And I think that's kind of astounding. That was her first acting role ever. And the part really doesn't challenge her in any way. She just has to look hot. But at least she looks very unique. Like, she has a a unique look for a beautiful person. She looks hot and she's likable and charming, which I think I can imagine a much lamer version of her character. Mm -hmm. Where it's only a hot woman and she has no charm or personality to her. I just want to second and third your (laughs) pro Cameron Diaz opinions. I think she's super charming and a very good comedic performer. And I think this is a good like first debut role for her. But I do think she's treated in a very sexist way by this movie. Her introductory shot is a tits up shot. But it's a parody shot. No, it's not. There's nothing parody about it. It is completely serious 
And that, that first tit shot is followed immediately by a second up the leg tit shot. It's like a double take of purely objectifying. She's supposed to be the femme fatale in the movie. Like it's going off of that trope. So it's making fun of that. Like they even made her like more voluptuous. Yes. <laughs> I'm grabbing my invisible <laughs> boobs here to try and find a polite way to say this. Let me hold them for you. More buxom than she really was in real life because that's how the character was written. She's supposed to just be this sort of knockout and that's very much a trope of like the woman walks into the office and she's like the mall of the um, bad guys. I I think I get that, but the reason that bothers me, even if it is a parody or an homage to that kind of femme fatale, is that every man in this movie is a horn dog. Yes. <laughs> and they look at women as sexual objects. And all that's and kind of what women are them... in this movie is just sexual objects. In all of these movies, women are just, at most, they are sexual objects. At worst, they are the bad guy. Or they're just nothing. They're just there to deliver exposition and leave. I kind of disagree. I mean, there's the Peggy character who seems like she's going to be the actual romantic lead. Like, maybe he won't end up with the bad girl. But it's like, oh, maybe there's this nice girl and that'll be the thing. And then she turns out to double cross him. Well, I mean, this gets into our impressions of the movie in general. But I, I think this movie treats all of its women as disposable. I felt that the way that he kind of picked and chose which of the women he would give attention to it was just completely arbitrary based on what the plot required of him at any given moment. I wasn't sure exactly what his chemistry was supposed to be really with any of the women in his life. I mean, I find this movie to be a, it's not a direct parody, but like a kind of a funnier take on like Tim Burton's Batman movies and just comic book movies in general. It does remind me a lot of Roger Rabbit and I find it much better than Roger Rabbit. I was going to ask you who you found more obnoxious. Jesus Christ. I find Roger Rabbit so much more obnoxious than (laughs) You are invited to leave (sighs) this domicile. Like, this movie is Roger Rabbit, and uh, so I don't understand how you could Oh my god, like what is wrong with so you? I disagree, Roger but... Rabbit <laughs> and not like this movie. Like, what is the difference to you? This movie was Dick Tracy with worse art direction. I did not, I did not really liken this to Roger Rabbit, because at least Roger Rabbit is a character. There is no... I totally disagree. <laughs> I, what is Roger Rabbit's character? I don't know how to answer. Like, it just, what do you mean? He is literally a cartoon character. Right. But who, in that world of Roger Rabbit, has a context. He has a uni- universe that he lives in. I can't get into a Roger Rabbit argument again because I'll just, <laughs> this will I last know, another hour. Surprisingly, I liked this movie. Good. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. <laughs> oh, I've given up on I all of you. I <laughs> have problems with it, but generally, I went into this movie not remembering anything. In fact, that's this, this is why I wanted to do the podcast. I wanted to watch this movie again. Yeah. I thought I was going to hate it, and I kept waiting to hate it. And mm-hmm. it was like 20 minutes, and it was like 30 minutes. And then it was only kind of the middle after he became the mask and had a few adventures that it started to wear thin on me. And I was yeah. like more bored than hating it, mm-hmm. even though I do have like problems yeah. with certain things. I actually was like super surprised that I was like on board. Like, I, was, I was like watching it like entertained until kind of in the middle when the story wasn't strong enough to keep my interest. AKA it completely falls apart. (laughs) (laughs) But like up until then, like I kind of liked how they handled Stanley. Like it was a children's movie. Like this felt Mm -hmm. like a total 
like, you know, like a nine-year-old's movie that was age-appropriate. There wasn't, like, blowjobs and sex like in Ace Ventura. It was very simple. Totally. Very simple dialogue. I I agree with all of that. I found it an inoffensive movie. I did not find it funny, but I found it was, like, a pleasant thing. It was not toxic and full of acidic bile (laughs) toward other... I didn't laugh out loud, but I chuckled a little, and I enjoyed watching it for the most part. Yeah, I think, I mean, like, we were complaining with Ace Ventura that he didn't have a thing. Like, we didn't understand, like, what he was even doing. And this one makes it clear. It's like, he's a normal guy, and then he puts on this mask, and he gets to be Mm -hmm. Jim Carrey, like, turned up to 11. And they even justify why he acts the way he does. It's because he really likes old-school cartoons, and Mm -hmm. he has, like, the cartoons hanging you know, cells on the wall yeah, and he has like a Tasmanian cool. devil pillow or something. Yeah, I really like, liked those touches Like, so it's too. like, oh, okay, he acts like that kind of cartoon because he really likes those cartoons. So it's not totally uh, random why he would act like a Tex Avery cartoon. Yeah, I mean, I felt the fact of the mask as the thing that gives the character as power in this story kind of set it up for the ultimate bad guy to not really have that much impact for me. And I do think after, like, the halfway point, the movie kind of loses its way and loses its rhythm, I think in large part because the character of the bad guy is just not compelling at all. Well, that brings up a question for me. Is the mask the villain? Are we supposed to like the mask? Like him wearing it? Like, are we supposed to like him in the green mask? Or is that the villain that he has to overcome? Or is that the guy? I think the fact that you're asking that (laughs) is already putting more thought into it than the people who scripted it. But like, did you guys, like, that's why I don't, I don't understand watching this movie. Like, is that, was that? I almost took it as being that the mask is the bad guy and that he can no longer escape it now. To me, I felt like the mask was, I mean, you could read it as a metaphor for a lot of things, but like the mask only works at night. I felt like it was kind of a metaphor for being drunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he like goes out with this mask and has a great time and then wakes up in the morning and he's like, what did I do? And mm-hmm. like has to deal with the consequences of all that. So I think that it is something that- Like your inner demon? It, yeah, it lets him get in touch with some good parts of himself. Like he needs to be a more confident person, but it ultimately is a destructive thing. So And he abandons it at the end. Yeah. So maybe that's why the supposedly the villain in the movie is boring, because the real villain is the mask guy. Yeah, I mean, that character still could have been a lot better. And I yeah, think it's yeah, like later sure. when he for, like, puts yeah. on oh, the sure. mask. I, for and sure, he like, could have been a better character. Yeah, and then because the comic is rooted in like he's an actual like serial killer in the mask, I think it is rooted in that darkness where... Oh, wow. And I think that, yeah, like he's killing people left and right. In the, and I'm not sure if they're, like, villains or what, but it's definitely, like, very violent. Mm. Wow. So, and I feel like that darkness is in this movie, even though it's a fairly light movie. And, I mean, nothing in this movie is too scary. In fact, they cut out a scene where the Peggy character is murdered by mm. the guy in the mask. I like that scene. I, I think it should have been left in. Yeah. Because I remembered that twist. Is That's the one thing I remembered from this movie, is that that twist that the nice redhead is mm-hmm. actually... Um, oh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't remember that. That's the one thing I remembered from this movie. It might have been the first time that I was like, what? The nice character isn't a nice person? Like, mm-hmm. that was one of the first times I ever saw that. And so I think then murdering her would have been kind of a <laughs> more interesting choice, <laughs> but they thought no. it was too scary. Yeah. It wouldn't have fit tonally yeah. with what the movie really is. Yeah. 
But I do think that that darkness comes through in Jim Carrey's performance and the, the fact that this is his id and it's kind of dangerous and scary is really important because I think Carrey is a lot better when there's some darkness to her performance. And I think that this came from something that is that sinister. It does, I think, kind of show through. Do you like what the mask on him looks like? <laughs> because I thought... I'm fine with it. I just hadn't looked at him as that in a long time and the moment it was on him i was like he's so creepy <laughs> he's grotesque and he's wearing he's these grotesque. fake teeth that are almost like horse teeth I that are so large the te- it's the i spent half of this movie wondering <laughs> how he literally made words with his mouth <laughs> right or like ate or drank in between takes or literally anything i It had to have hurt like hell. The teeth were not supposed to be part of the thing, except for they were like one visual effect. uh And he insisted on wearing them the entire movie. I guess it worked. It was super creepy. And it like added to the cartoony oversized. Right. I think that's what makes it dark is that he's so creepy looking like he's not a like a cuddly character no. at all he's like someone that you're actually afraid of and he's like constantly like pulling out guns and yeah. stuff so he's no, like he's horrifying in that get up <laughs> like, yeah oh my yeah God. And, I, and i really do think um you're right on the money both of you are and that this is a more complex characterization it's not just that it's written in a more complicated way that gives some grounding to every version of jim carrey that's performing in this movie um, but also his kind of embodiment of the character is a lot more deeply considered than, you know, his character in Ace Ventura. Yeah, I think you can see, really see him evolving mm-hmm. as yeah. a performer. And, and, it, and it does have that edge of darkness to it in a way that I think obviously he explores much more fully in later movies. And this makes better, like it makes sense when he kind of addresses the audience in this because he's such a cartoon character and like when he... Like, I really mm-hmm. like the scene where he does the Oscar speech. Mm-hmm. Of course like, you do. <laughs> ridiculous. but um, It's like a really weird non-Oscar statue. It's yeah. like like glowing white. Yeah. But all of this makes sense because the screenplay bothers to set up, like, why this would be such a ridiculous, over-the-top character. Like, we, we get what's happening. And uh, Jim Carrey actually saved the budget some money because his face is so rubbery that some of the effects they had planned, they didn't actually have to do because he (laughs) could just do them with his face. I was going to say, I wonder if the movie spent all of its budgets on its effects because they're only like five locations. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's still a fairly cheap movie. There's his apartment. There's the bank. There's the nightclub that they keep going back to the same nightclub. And um, I don't know, an outdoor set. That's about it. Yeah, there's the newspaper press, too. Yeah, okay. Another thing that I legitimately enjoyed was that the bad guys in this movie uh, completely comically cackle after explaining their dastardly plot. (laughs) Uh, And I really appreciated that as a character choice. Also, I thought it was really kind of weird and funny. Picking up, Chris, on what you were saying about like a Tim Burton influence, it seems like this movie takes place in a kind of low-key post-apocalyptic world. It takes place in fictional Edge City. It takes place not just in Edge City. There's another one of the other few locations is called Landfill Park. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like everything is super grimy and dark. And that seems like it was straight out of the comic book, I feel like. Yeah, it really. No, it totally did. And I think it's a funny like kind of parody of like Gotham City, because when you watch those exactly. movies, you're like, why would you live there? It looks like a horrible place to live. <laughs> exactly. I thought that this was just an incredible star turn for Jim Carrey. I can't believe that this part wasn't written with him in mind from the very beginning. It just seems he just takes it over 
like I not many actors could do what he does in this movie and be so confident doing it and be this kind of star. Like I can't think of anyone else living or dead really that could do that. Like maybe Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was Jim Carrey signing on to it that pushed it more away from horror and toward being a comedy because they were still kind of thinking of it trying to be kind of a horror comedy like the jokey like the mm -hmm. jokiness of Freddy Krueger and but that's kind of violence as well hmm. and then Jim Carrey being cast but they had to kind of fight for him to be cast in this because he wasn't box office draw until then when right. Ace Ventura was released and then they also had to really fight for Cameron Diaz because the studio didn't want her in the movie so right. the director of this movie even though he's not like a big director that we know we can kind of thank him for fighting so hard for two of these stars mm -hmm. that went on to become like yeah good casting big, big things I was really impressed and for some reason in Ace Ventura watching Jim Carrey's facial expressions it was exhausting but in this I was kind of like enamored watching him I don't know what the difference really was I mean he's still playing green, over the green top green makeup <laughs> <laughs> maybe just because he is look he is so cartoony that him acting cartoony makes more sense than if he's a person living in the real world I, I don't know. actually I totally agree with that especially that last part leaning into the cartoonish nature of it in a very literal way I think again helps him realize that character so fully you know and not just that but again back to the writing there is some grounding in those characters as to like what animates them literally what they want it is a huge leap forward I wonder if Jim Carrey's performance was kind of a response to Robin Williams as the genie in Aladdin, just mm. because it's pop culture references and impressions, and Aladdin came out two years before this, and it was such a colossal hit. I'm just wondering, maybe... I don't, I don't think... No? I don't think so. They never... Neither of them strike me as the type of person who would base their performances on Or maybe that's what the producers else's. were looking for, is like pop culture references and... Like impressions and like in I this. I think kind that of was movie. just kind of Jim Carrey's shtick. I think that was part of his yeah. um, stand-up comedy is the impressions. It wasn't really a big thing on In Living Color, from what I saw. He did actually more character-based comedy that actually reminded me more of well, the mask, but the dark part of the mask, mm -hmm. like the Fire Marshal Bill. Like they're very dark characters. Actually. Yes, very, very dark. Um, and I was surprised by that. I was expecting In Living Color to be more like Ace Ventura kind of stuff, and hmm. at least most of what I saw just right. search for this wasn't. Um, so I think that was just part of his thing, and I think that he brought that to this movie. I don't think there were a lot of pop culture references before him. I think he kind of had a a big hand in which things were referenced where. When Cameron Diaz started singing in the nightclub, I really wanted her to sing like Kimmy at karaoke and my best friend's wedding. <laughs> like just be awful because she was kind of good in this movie. Yeah. So. yeah. I thought you were going to say like Jessica Rabbit because it was like the same scene. No, I wanted it to be like, oh, I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. This podcast is giving me a real Cameron Diaz appreciation, I have to say. Ready, Harry? <laughs> Mock! Yeah! Ing! Yeah! Bird! Yeah! 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 Mockingbird! Don't everybody have you heard? Have you heard? She's gonna buy me a mockingbird! And if that mockingbird don't sing, she's gonna buy me a diamond ring! There's some people who want to ride too. Pick them up. Ah, 
So from that, we will move on to Dumb and Dumber, which was released December 16th, 1994. At the top of the charts was Here Comes the Hot Stepper by Innie Camozzi. <laughs> you said that so uncool. <laughs> Here Comes the Hot Stepper. The Hot Stepper. Alrighty then. <laughs> I don't know what that song is. Do you guys know what that song is? Here Comes the Hot Stepper. Still loving like that. Seriously? No, never heard that. Completely blank faced. Listeners, no, you know what song no that is. I have no fucking idea what any of this is. Na, 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 na. That I remember. Na, 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 na. But that wasn't that's just the same from this. song. That's not just from that. <laughs> but that's the song. Oh. <laughs> uh, give me the next line. <laughs> and that was uh, Here Comes the Hot Stepper by Becky Bain. <laughs> In the interim between The Mask and Dumb and Dumber, the TV sitcom Friends debuted, giving Courtney Cox a way out of terrible movies like Ace Ventura. <laughs> She found a way back into horrible movies later. Was she in the sequel? <laughs> no. Oh, good. No. <laughs> good for her. <laughs> uh, Kevin Smith's Clerks was released, and Netscape Navigator, the first web browser, <laughs> was released the day before Dumb and Dumber. So the budget of Dumb and Dumber was $17 million. It went on to be a big success at $247.3 million worldwide, and that was largely on the success of Jim Carrey, who had already been in Ace Ventura and the Mask. The movie was number one at the box office, followed by the Santa Claus Disclosure, and The Lion King was still <laughs> I, at the box office. I never saw the Santa Claus Disclosure. <laughs> oh, it's a good one. <laughs> to be more as Mrs. Claus is a knockout. <laughs> Does Santa sexually harass Michael Douglas? <laughs> yes. So The Mask had proven that Ace Ventura wasn't a fluke, that Jim Carrey was actually a major bankable star now. So Carrey's salary was 350000 for Ace Ventura, 450000 for The Mask, and $7 million for Dumb and Dumber. God damn. So he got quite a pay raise. Jeff Daniels made $50,000 on this movie. <laughs> Seriously? Yes, and the reason for that is that the studio did not want to cast him, so they offered him the lowest possible figure they could, thinking that he would just turn it down, and he didn't. Can I tell you something? I had no idea that Jeff Daniels was a serious actor when I saw this movie. Me neither, yeah. Like, I thought that's who, that's the first thing I ever saw in him, and then when he was in dramas after this movie, I thought he was being cast against type. <laughs> so when I, like, see him in, like, the newsroom or something, my first thought is, like, but he's, like, such a silly comedy actor, but he's really not. Like, yeah. he was a serious actor. That's kind of my experience, too, oh, is Becky. I think this is the first time I saw him. <laughs> Always believing that people are exactly like the first role you see uh -huh. them in. The movie <laughs> was not are a exactly very big like the first role you critics. see them in. <laughs> you don't say. Peter Stack of the San Francisco Chronicle said, It's by no means a perfect movie, but it is well photographed, crisply paced, and has the kind of plucky spontaneity often lacking in contemporary comedies. More than wacky antics drives this cheerful film. Dumb and Dumber is riddled with smarts, and that's the part you end up admiring the most. Whereas Rita Kempley of the Washington Post, who I will remind Man, you. Rita! loved Ace Ventura and actually gave it one of the very few good reviews, said of this movie, an execrable catalog of duty jokes, Dumb and Dumber is an abominable, abominable comedy. Aside from its tastelessness and dawdling pace, the movie's chief problem is the lackluster chemistry between leading lummoxes, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. What? Yeah. Wow, Rita. Way Rita, to turn Rita's it around. Rita's crazy if she thinks Ace Ventura is better than this. But also, the, no chemistry? She also said the future does not look bright for the Fairleys. <laughs> oh, Rita, you were very wrong. Incidentally, Rita was flattened by an 18-wheeler the next week. So, hmm, who's right now? So, all I remembered about this movie was the tongue. Like, literally, that was it. It was <laughs> Jeff Daniels' tongue getting stuck to the pole. Yep. That was my entire memory of this movie. 
For me, it was the tongue and the the icicles in the nostrils. I watched this movie a billion times when I was younger. So I knew all of it by heart. I think that I forgot it. Mm -hmm. And then as it was being watched, like, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, I know every line of the scene. And I had not seen it in decades. I know that I saw it in the theater, and it was one of those movies that my cousin, who's a filmmaker, always just loved the hell out of. So he had it on tape quickly after, like basically whenever that was released bootlegs. on tape. Um, no, it was not one of the handwritten bootlegs, um, but we did watch the hell out of it. So I did see it a lot of times growing up, but I hadn't watched it in at least 10 or 15 years or so. Yeah, and I had not seen it since it came out on video. So this movie made me wonder, does every 90s movie have a dumb crime subplot? Because (laughs) all three of these movies have crime subplots, which makes a little bit more sense for Ace Ventura and The Mask. But this, I was like, oh, there's crime in this movie, too. It's a little crazy. So out of these three movies, this is the only one where I would laugh out loud at parts. Like, I was legitimately laughing. And I think that there are some problems in this movie or some jokes that do not hold up or fall flat and maybe were never funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I really enjoyed watching this again. Yeah, I wasn't really looking forward to this movie because I remember not really connecting to it as a kid. I, I just thought it was dumb. <laughs> and um, it surprised me that I liked it as much as I did. So I watched... The unrated version, which, and all of my favorite scenes turned out to be from, like, the things that were cut out, so... And I think that's pretty much the version that's out there right now, if you were going to rent it. Okay. Yeah. Um, It's not wildly different. It just, it's a little bit darker, actually, and that's what I liked about it, is that, especially the Jim Carrey character is a little, like, cruder in some of the stuff they cut out, and I appreciated that, because I think it is kind of funny that particularly Jim Carrey is kind of a creep in this movie like and I think that's funny like he's not necessarily someone that you like oh he's definitely stalking her (laughs) yeah and I like the fact that they make it really uncomfortable (laughs) in moments you can see it in her eyes she's uncomfortable with it um which makes the movie in a way more realistic that other people are looking at each other like can you believe these guys versus in Ace Ventura people seem annoyed by him but they're not like this person is insane and that person and he is obviously like and he's way more over the top than he is in this movie even and like people would just be like get him out of here (laughs) but in this one yeah it's a lot more believable and it it has the right mix of people really reacting that he's stupid (laughs) yeah one of the biggest thematic things that carried through to me that the, carried carried through. Sorry, go on. You're not sorry. <laughs> not sorry. You're not Somebody sorry. Stop me, you guys. You can't see it, uh, but Chris is not sorry. Um, there is casual bird murder that is just the running, <laughs> if not the main theme of this film. More than just pretty bird. <laughs> so many more birds. PD. Yeah, no, it's not just that bird. Oh, there are <laughs> there are other there oh, there's are the owls. There he they kill a rare owl with a cork. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, this movie really is about casual avian homicide. Thing <laughs> that was the working title actually. Well, I, I, at least on that, I think they made the right choice. Going off the heels of that, that bird scene is my favorite in the movie. <laughs> of like pretty bird, pretty bird, pretty bird. It's um, ridiculous. It's, uh, he's blind, but like, he, could, he can feel that the he bird is not feel. alive. That's why it's hilarious. 
hilarious. He can tell the difference between tape and feathers. I think that this movie is so quotable still. And my favorite quote out of a lot of favorite quotes of this movie is, we got no money, we got no jobs, our pet's heads are falling off. That's a good one. (laughs) It still, like, makes me crack up. Yeah, there are some really funny lines in many of the Farrelly Brothers movies. There are, like, a lot of funny quotable lines. There are some characters that are pretty funny, like my experience with every other Farrelly Brothers movie. It's kind of sexist to its core, and it kind of falls apart about halfway through. I definitely did laugh at some of the lines, but just a lot of the jokes are beyond dumb, just not funny. They're dumber. They're dumber than dumb. Dumberer. Yes. For me, at least, there's more jokes that work than not. I had the thought midway through this movie that Jim Carrey by this point was more quotable than he was funny. And I think that's kind of a hangover of my reaction to all of these other, all of these movies from this era, where there wasn't as much of a serious side that he had shown yet. Mm-hmm. And I do think out of the three of them, the mask is the most kind of dark and somewhat layered thing. But with this, I, again, was left feeling that there wasn't really an authentic character there that I was seeing. Because like 90% of the time, he is just beyond mentally handicapped. And then another like 10% of the time, he's like a strategic genius who can yeah. like plan out a way to perfectly get back at someone. And there's really no showing why he can turn on that dime. They're really more mentally challenged than dumb. Like, they're not really idiots. There's, like, something wrong with their... Yeah, but then it also... That also, like, made me feel sad if they were actually mentally challenged. There would have been some kind of intervention by that point, and they wouldn't have lives as supposed adults. Yeah, I think this movie takes a few two easy jokes like Jim Carrey not being able to pronounce the or like read the (laughs) word the I'm like that like stretches how believably dumb I can think someone is and I would have liked a more clear definition of how dumb they were and weren't some of the jokes make it seem like they're just ridiculously stupid and I like it more that they're just a little bit stupid. Like, I think one joke, which was actually Jim Carrey improvising when he looks at the man on the moon. The, 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 there's a newspaper that says, like, it's an old newspaper that says, like, 1969 and the moon landing. Yeah, and I like that because it, it's it's just a We warped, did it! Yeah, it's <laughs> funny, but it's not like, like, I can't read, you know? It just doesn't... I kind of liked that, the line. Uh, <laughs> I kind of liked it. I feel like most... It was funny. Like, a lot of things were funny in the moment. Like, even that uh-huh. line probably I found funny, but... I don't necessarily find it all consistent together it's more of just a collection of yeah that's the thing a lot of the fairly brothers movies are the episodic version of writing comedy where it's a clothesline and your job as the writer is just to put as many pins on that line that can pull you all the way to the end of the movie as possible but if you don't put enough pins that can stick then your movie will kind of fall apart and i do think it kind of falls apart And I mean, there are also other avenues that the movie clearly doesn't take that I thought would have been so much more interesting. There is a sexual chemistry and energy between Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey's characters. And they have, like, gay jokes and gay moments. And I wish that that had been pursued. And this is the thing throughout most of the Fairly Brothers movies where they have gay jokes, but they didn't never even try to make characters who were gay. They want to kind of make fun of the existence of gay people and investigate and try to find comedy in being gay. I didn't hate the movie. It had its requisite amount of 
kind of objectification of women. I mean, there's a dream sequence. There's a dream sequence where Jim Carrey, like, lifts his love interest skirt. But it's clearly lifting it up to show to the audience. And he's, like, bragging (laughs) about it. Yeah, he's, like, smiling. That made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, I liked it. it. I thought it was funny. It made me uncomfortable. it's his dream sequence. Like, I get all that. And, like, there's a shot where he's, like, looking at... She takes her clothes off slow, like you do before you have sex. Right. Um, And her boobs are, like, (laughs) headlights. Yeah. As a woman watching this, she's already such a thin character. And then just on top of it... That Lauren Holly sure is thin, isn't she? Yeah. It just made me uncomfortable to watch. Well, and Becky, what you're getting at was was that I took from most of these, which is that most of the women characters in these movies are plot people, where it's like they only exist because the main characters need this plot thing to happen, so the other characters are brought in for however much time it takes to get that plot out, and then they're gone. That's virtually all women in all movies for a long period oh, of time. Oh, I know. Yep. Oh, this that, is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, and these are, these yeah. are those. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> These are among those. Um, but then another kind of thing that stuck out is, uh, as weak to me was Harlan Williams is a bit actor. He's like a character actor mm. in a bunch of different comedies, Half-Baked and a bunch of other movies. And in this, he plays a cop who pulls them over. And the big gag that it builds up to is that Harlan Williams' character drinks piss, but that's in a beer bottle while he's like trying to prove that they've been driving drunk. But it's like, you can smell piss and no cop would drink from a bottle that they've just confiscated from a potential like, DUI suspect. Best case scenario, that was beer. Right. <laughs> Right. And he's warm going beer. to drink yeah. warm. Yeah, I mean that's why not every part is as clever as the next part. You know, yeah. like it's they're not they're not all equal jokes. That's the peril of making a movie that's as episodic as this is that you have to keep building your comedy up and up and up and up and have bigger and bigger payoffs to your jokes or the rhythm of it gets thrown off. Keep building yeah, your I comedy up and up and really up and up and have bigger movie, and bigger payoffs to your jokes or Jeff the rhythm of it gets Jim thrown Carey, off. Because they're such different actors. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of alluded to, they were very nervous about casting him. They wanted to cast another comedic actor and it. Jim Carrey actually wanted Jeff Daniels because he wanted a real actor to be able to play off of. And I think that was a really good move because I think that they're energy matches each other really well and that Jeff Daniels is a lot more likable of a character and he's not over the top very much. He's still very funny, I think. Like, half of the comedy moments, I think, go to him and are just as funny as Jim Carrey's part. But I think two Jim Carrey's in this movie would have been, like, too much. Miserable. I remember um, (laughs) I saw, like, some bonus features and they were interviewing Jeff Daniels and everybody in his life was like, don't take this movie. Yeah. (laughs) And he was like... I want to take it and they give it's not like I'm just second fiddle to Jim Carrey like I'm in a lot of scenes without Jim Carrey yeah. where he's on dates with like Lauren Holly's character and mm-hmm. he, he like he gets to shine in those scenes. And I do think that he's the closest thing to a straight man character in in any three of these movies. Um cuz I really do think that he like it's it's not that he's like a humorless wall. It's that he's kind of the straight man in terms of the guy who sets up the joke that Jim Carrey then hits over the net. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that Jim Carrey throughout his career hasn't done as much. Um, But I do think it really works here. Yeah, I think that they are both really committed, and especially Jeff Daniels, I think really commits. I think that's why the movie works. And I think they have great chemistry. That's why that's really surprising that that reviewer said that. Yeah, Rita. The one part part of the movie I really hate, and this is personal preference, is I hate the scatological humor in it. You mean the diarrhea. Yeah, this is the movie (laughs) where I learned what... Oh, you mean the diarological humor? This is the movie where I learned what laxatives were. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think this might have been when I first learned. I had no idea. I was like, what is that? And now he's shitting a lot. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, but I really, I, I remember whenever I would watch that, I would fast forward to that scene. <laughs> I never liked it. Yeah, I didn't. I think that's one of the reasons I didn't connect with this movie that much either when I was a kid is that also was not my particular brand of humor. Um, I was comparing this to Romy and Michelle in my head just to kind of see like what's the difference because I really like Romy and Michelle, which is about two characters you'd probably call like dumb blondes. Mm -hmm. And this is about two dumb male characters. But I feel like when male characters are dumb they are like extremely dumb like they have to be so dumb that they're like basically can't even function yeah and like <laughs> and they need to be so exceedingly dumb to even be seen as dumb right yeah like Romeo and Where's michelle are like they have their own they're dumb about some things but they're still competent people <laughs> you know and i find that a lot they can dress themselves in the and more relatable like i don't relate to either of these guys because they're just like so far down the totem pole of intelligence and there was also a moment that i really disliked where there are these gangsters and what is it like one of them gets shot and dies or something one of them gets poisoned rat poison yeah that's what it is one of them gets ra- poisoned with rat poison uh, and Jim Carrey's response in that moment is to tell him it's a lot easier if you just lay back. Yeah, I mean, is, it's like a throwaway line. It's a throwaway line about rape. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are fewer explicitly homophobic moments in this than the other ones. There would have to be. <laughs> yeah, just logistically. But there is still a lot of undercurrent of rape culture and gay jokes just yeah. so casually strewn about this. If, if this movie was made today, that line wouldn't make the cut. And it probably wouldn't even be pitched. But yeah, it's, it's a small, tiny maybe. throwaway line, so that's why it doesn't bother me so much. Yeah. yeah, and Jim Carrey is also nearly raped by a trekker in this movie. Oh yeah, that was a weird scene. Yeah, it didn't really bother me, but it's also like yeah. unnecessary. Like it's not rooted in these characters at all, so I don't understand why it was in this movie. Like the joke of them is that they're dumb, not like, yeah. I like this movie because it feels like the Farrelly brothers are smarter than this movie, and a lot of the ways that they present these characters' idiocy is in a clever way, mm-hmm. like him wasting all of the gas bill money on like pinwheels and a giant cowboy hat. <laughs> like things like that really delight me. It's like let's play with different ways that we can show that these characters are dum dums, and I feel like for the most part they succeed in that. Yeah, I also liked at the end when he's wearing a bulletproof vest and then he's like, what if you shot me in the face? And it's like, that's the problem with all of those like, gotcha, he's wearing a bulletproof vest. It's like, well, you could be shot in other places than the the chest. That was a risk we were willing to take. Yeah. I I thought that was well done in this I thought that was really funny. I love the Mexican hitchhikers and them singing the Mockingbird song. Mock, see, bird, see. (laughs) I really liked the Mockingbird sequence. I thought that was, like, one of the funniest versions of that. Because they're trying to annoy... They're not trying to annoy the guy in the middle. Right. The bad guy. The bad guy. But it just happens to be that they're annoying him to death, and it just keeps escalating. Pick him up! (laughs) I also enjoyed Jim Carrey looking at the magazine Rhode Island Slut. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yeah, in that scene. Um, I thought this was, like, peak Carrey. 
just something about it. I was like, they're going to show this in his Oscar memoriams. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I feel like the mask was already Pete Carey. So is this like Carey Plateau at the end of 1994? I don't know. And then there's does just, it go down? There's something about it. He's working at 100% in this movie. Like, there's just something He's working like... working at 100... I don't know what... <laughs> Do you watch Ace Ventura? Was <laughs> yeah, he seriously. phoning it in? Like... <laughs> I guess really that's true. That whole Carrie just doesn't there. have any energy in this mask movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God he turned up the volume in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> I guess um, that's true. One interesting tidbit about this movie is that uh, the tooth is real. His chipped tooth. That's right. Uh, he actually had a chipped tooth that... Uh, he got from Clark LaPrairie on the... Wait, what? <laughs> Clark LaPrairie. Are you naming at, names? Yes. Well, is that Jim Carrey a, is that a names. person's name? Yes. Okay. It's, and that is the person Canadian. who jumped on his head in grade school detention and knocked his tooth out. And so he had it capped, but then uncapped it for this role. I'm assuming he uncapped it again for the sequel. Oh, I don't know. That's a good lead into the sequel, though, Dumb and Dumber 2. Uh, T.O., <laughs> uh, which I watched three quarters of. You're welcome. Um, I never asked you to do that. No, no one asked you to do that. Well, it's not as good as uh, Dumb and Dumber. Oh, you don't say. It has a lot of the problems that I kind of thought Dumb and Dumber would have in that it's just, it's the, for one, they're too old to be doing this. Like, it just doesn't, <laughs> they're playing the exact same characters and it just, like, it just doesn't work with, like, Jeff Daniels, especially just, like, after you've seen Jeff Daniels in a bunch of dramas since then, like, just <laughs> having him put that wig on again, it, it was an, it was a no. <laughs> It's a no for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no. And it just felt like both of them were doing parodies of these characters rather than playing these characters again. So that was one year in the life of Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> and 40 years in the life of audiences. <laughs> it's kind of, it is crazy that these movies all came out within less than a year of each other. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember what the biggest movie of 1994 was? The Lion King. No. Oh, was it Forrest Gump? Yes, it was. So it is interesting that Jim Carrey rose to fame in the same year that a movie about a guy who is also not the brightest <laughs> was like the big Oscar movie and the biggest box office hit. Um, also in 1994, like the Santa Claus and the Flintstones were in the top five highest grossing movies. Oh God. So it was not like the brightest you guys, year. You guys, did, was there like an accidental lead spill <laughs> into the America's drinking water? And we also had like the indie version of this was like kind of Clerks. That was almost like Dumb and Dumber, but slightly smarter kind of kinda guys. And then like Beavis and Butthead was also just recently on TV. So there was like a real resurgence of dumb humor at mm-hmm. this time. Jim Carrey, we said that he had like a great year at the box office this year. He had an even better 1995. He had the number one and number two opening weekends of 1995 in Batman Forever and Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. Wow. Interestingly, Dumb and Dumber won Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards. I remember that. And Best Comic Performance. Carrie was nominated twice and also the previous year. And he won the next three years for Ace Ventura, Cable Guy, and Liar Liar. And then he won Best Male Performance for Truman Show. (laughs) He was nominated in 2000 for Man on the Moon, won Best Villain in 2001 for The Grinch, and was nominated for Comedic Actor for Me, Myself, and Irene. They really like him at MTV. (laughs) They sure do. To talk a little bit about where Carrie went in the rest of the 90s. The Cable Guy was in 96. He got a huge paycheck for that movie. 20 million. 
and it was considered a disappointment in a lot of ways. Bruce Almighty ended up being his top grocer in 2003. Jim Carrey was also nearly cast in Tim Burton's Superman movie, if that... As Superman? No, as uh, the villain. Lex Luthor? I think Brainiac? Brainiac. Nicolas Cage was going to be Superman. Yeah. Right. Oh, got it. If only that had happened. He also was the first choice for Toy Story for Buzz Lightyear. And Paul Newman was uh, going to be the Woody. And uh, Mike Myers wanted him to be Dr. Evil in Austin Powers. (laughs) And when he couldn't do it, he just played it himself. Also uh, worth noting is that all of the movies we talked about today had terrible sequels slash prequels without Jim Carrey in them. (laughs) That would be uh, Dumb and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd in 2003. (laughs) Son of the Mask in 2005 with Jamie Kennedy. And Ace Ventura Jr. in 2009. Let's not. What is the character there? It's his son, (laughs) who is a child. Who's estranged from his father. That's why he's not in the movie. I guess so. Uh, Son of the Mask cost $84 million to make and did not make wow. that much money. Like I would have put three that times more so than much the original better to use. Without <laughs> having Jim Carrey in the movie. It's absurd. That's so absurd. I think we should also put in a good word for the turn that Jim Carrey's career took later. Yeah. As he started doing more and more serious acting roles. I wanted to highlight The Truman Show. Mm-hmm. And the year after that, he was the lead as Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon mm-hmm. by Milos He's great Forman. In that. He's fantastic in both of those it's movies. It's a great movie. And got a Golden Globe, I believe, for The Truman Show. And did he also win one for Man on the Moon? He was nominated. Yeah, it, he did Liar Liar and Cable Guy and continued along the comedy route. But he made a, in my view, really, really successful turn toward dramatic roles. Oh, Eternal Sunshine? I love, and that's not even to bring in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which was an early 2000s movie directed by Michelle Michelle Gondry, written by Charlie Kaufman. I, I think it's a very natural extension of the kind of crazy kooky characters because those were always very clearly about externalizing something interior on the inside and it's really cool to me that he later found those roles and found um, collaborators who helped him who gave him on the page the complexity of characters that would allow him not to have to be so zany to get his point across yeah I think a lot of actors who are big in comedy end up you know having a few hits And then doing pale imitations of those hits for a lot of the rest of their career. And I think that's something that sets Jim Carrey apart from some of the other actors I think of who did similar roles around this time, like Mike Myers, Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell. They are still making some successful movies. And they all kind of tried to do some dramatic roles, but none of them really crossed over into being serious dramatic actors and, and it's I would say Carrey really did. It's interesting that among all of the folks you just mentioned. Carrie was the Jim Carrey was the only person who wasn't on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Literally every single other one of those folks were on SNL for their years on years. And he was on in Living Color, so I guess that was the the secret. Mm-hmm. Well, and then but 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 it makes me think because part of that becoming a breakout star on SNL is usually you get cast in movies, like whether that's really the thing that you're best at or not. Mm-hmm. So I wonder to what extent like not getting that and taking the route that he took made him kind of always have to 
make the choices that would get him across, like where he didn't have a brand like that to propel him to the next part of his career. Right. And also SNL actors tend to get cast, if not directly in a movie, that's one of their sketches, something that at least like kind of highlights their the kind of the sketch characters that they had. It's already in the SNL family. Yeah. Whereas Ace Ventura is actually completely different than Jim Carrey on In Living Color. Like we were talking about, I mean, you can definitely see the physical comedy, but that was a lot much darker and edgier show than I think Ace Ventura or The Mask really lets on. And you started seeing some of the darkness come through in The Mask. Dumb and Dumber has a little bit of darkness, I would say. It's kind of on the fringes, but you can kind of see it. And I think Jim Carrey is really someone who is best when he both has some vulnerability and some sadness or darkness to him. Like, he's very sad in Eternal Sunshine. The Truman Show is kind of a tragedy, so that even though he's acting like his usual happy Jim Carrey self, the fact that he's being used in this way is disturbing. Well, and you and you see the pain throughout that movie of him realizing how his whole life is about him being mm. used. Have you seen um, I Love You, Philip Morris? Yeah, I think that's great, too. I think that's such a good movie, and it, you know, I don't even think it was promoted, and it maybe didn't even get it out in theaters, so it was kind of swept under it the was, rug. It was, but not very much, yeah. Um, but I think that's a phenomenal movie, and he does play, like, a very dark, com- a, com- a comically dark role, and he's pretty much the villain of his own story in that mm-hmm. movie. It's a really... Have you seen it, Seth? I still haven't seen it, but I, I'm going to watch it because I've been told it's really good. Yeah, and that's people. just another... He has a darkness to his cheery character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was completely missing from the role that made him such a big star in the first place, which was Ace Ventura, who was all pure id, and he was just, like, what a 12-year-old boy wants to, like, smart-ass say back to people, and that was the entire character. And, yeah, I think knowing who Jim Carrey really is and the kinds of roles that he was capable of playing allows me to go back and see Ace Ventura and, like, appreciate his performance, even when the movie itself is garbage. Yeah, I think that looking at these three movies... I think it very easily he could have been a one-hit wonder with Ace Ventura, could have gone a different direction, and that would have just been, like, a throwaway performance that's forgotten. But I think with The Mask, like, he became a star. Well, and I think after this era, like, well after this era, but I think eventually he became an incredibly versatile actor. Mm-hmm. Like, in a real dramatic actor, in a way that did, I think, kind of get informed by the kind of sketch comedy that he was able to do. Um, but it's just really interesting, especially, I, I I guess I must have known at some point that all three of these movies were roughly the same time. But the fact that, the idea that they were all released in just one year is insane to me. Like, that, that kind of meteoric rise usually takes someone like a decade to do, but he was someone who clearly could not be contained on no. the small screen. Um, on any screen, on really. On any screen, really. Um, and yeah, he was he was a person who kind of single-handedly defined a strain of comedy in the time when he blew up. Yeah, so right now he is executive producing the show I'm Dying Up Here for Showtime, which is based on his life, his experience in the comedy scene in L.A. in the 70s. Um, so I have not seen that, but seems... Looks promising. Yeah, for sure. So just to wrap up, um, which of these films did you think held up the best? Dumb and Dumber. Uh, Seth? I would say definitely Dumb and Dumber. The Mask didn't disappoint me nearly as much as I thought it would, (laughs) but Dumb and Dumber was still by far the most enjoyable watch. I'm going to go with The Mask. I had the most fun with that. 
No one picked Ace Ventura. <laughs> no, I would say personally, I could see watching Dumb and Dumber in like another five, ten years. Sure. I could see maybe if the mask is on TV or like one day maybe showing it to my kids or something and having a good time with it on. I would say don't watch Ace Ventura. You shouldn't have watched it to begin with. All copies should be burned. Yeah, I think that movie should purged. be unmade. Yeah. 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 Can you unmake a movie? Can you demake that? <laughs> So on our next episode, we will be crying on the baseball diamond with Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell. We will be doing the 1992 movie, A League of Their Own, famous for There's No Crying in Baseball, among other gem quotes that I'm sure you still quote Quotes from the show, gem. (laughs) There's no diamond in team. (laughs) I haven't seen the movie yet. (laughs) Seth hasn't seen it, so he's in for a treat. But that's all the 1994 we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. That's all the 1994 there was. We covered the whole thing. (laughs) You guys, that was pretty much all 365 days. (laughs) The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed our audiophonic experience, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash when we were young. You can tweet us on Twitter at www.yshow. You can also email us if you have any show ideas at www.yshow at gmail.com. We would love you very much to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and to leave us a review in the iTunes store of five stars or more in case you enjoy the show and would like to help other folks discover the show as well. And finally, if you want to help us defray the cost of producing a podcast we record and bring to you entirely for free, you can contribute to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash when we were young. I have been Seth Pearson. I've been Becky. I like it a lot. <laughs> Do not go in there. Smoking. Catchphrase. Alrighty then. I think we ran out of them. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Thank you. You love me. You really love me! <laughs> You're not going anywhere!